Welcome to Screen Therapy. I'm your host, Jason Schurz. In October of 2018, I found myself in the hospital, sitting across from a psychiatrist who was telling me that I was bipolar. I was released with a bunch of medication and laid on the couch for about a week. I had my iTunes library on shuffle, trying to shake the hornet's nest from my head. Ever since I was a kid, I've been using music for therapy and as a way to escape. Punk rock and mental health have always been connected. This podcast looks at that connection through the lens of different guests. This is Screen Therapy. Depression has been a huge part of Brian McTurnan's life since he was a child. Brian is the singer of Be Well, a band whose new album, The Weight and the Cost, details his lifelong journey with depression. Brian was hospitalized by his parents when he was 13. When he was released, he surrounded himself with like-minded people in the punk scene, forming his first band, Battery, when he was in his early teens. At the age of 18, Brian started recording bands at a studio that he built in his house, calling it Salad Days after the Minor Threat song. He quickly became renowned for his production work, for bands such as Hot Water Music, Converge, Thrice, Bane, and many others. After more than 20 years running the studio, he took a quote-unquote real job. It wasn't long before his depression demons came back and threatened to take over his life. Punk rock started calling him again. He immersed himself in music and saw his relationship with his family and himself get stronger. Brian has stayed close to the punk rock hardcore scene throughout his life. It's where he gets to be creative and where he belongs. He's not alone. Hey, my name is Brian McTurnan, and I am a music producer in the punk and hardcore world, and I previously sang in a hardcore band called Battery, and I currently sing in a band called Be Well. The new Be Well record is very centered on kind of the state of my mental health at the time that I wrote it, which was a very dark and kind of isolated and depressed place that kind of focuses on my journey through kind of accepting that and identifying that and trying to work through that while also dealing with the struggles of being a new parent. Now, you've been dealing with this for a long, long time since you were a kid. Yes. I think my parents had me in like therapy when I was maybe second grade. My dad has fairly severe OCD and my mom has had severe depression on and off her entire life. And my older brother has suffered from very similar things as well. And when you were younger, started in grade two, how did that progress over your next few years? Well, so what's interesting about it is 
I don't know that until I got away from my home life that anybody realized that it was depression. I think that it it mostly manifested as anger when I was young. A lot of trauma in my household. My parents fought a lot. There was a lot of screaming. It was very like messy and hectic and kind of crazy feeling. And we went through like a really tough time where my um, my father had a severe mental break at a certain point when my mom got pregnant with my youngest brother. You know, my mom had been a nun and felt like strongly like she was going to have the baby. I, I don't know the full story, but I think there was a lot of contention about that. And that kind of turned into like, he became really incredibly stressed out about money and things like that. And it was very tough. And so I think I dealt with it by kind of lashing out and getting in a lot of trouble and getting in fights. And it was suggested that I leave the school, the Catholic school I was at in fifth grade. And and then sixth grade, I went to a big public school and things were okay for a little while. And then when I kind of hit high school, it just, everything kind of went crazy. And um, that's when I got kicked out of high school. And then at that point in time, my parents hospitalized me for a period of time. And that was very, very, very traumatic. So, you know, I feel awful for my parents in some ways, because at that time, it was like very, I think that there just was not as much awareness of mental health as an illness. And I think there was a lot of like shame that they felt as parents that I was struggling. It was awful because I had started to meet some kids in private school and smaller schools. And I felt like these kids are a lot like me and they're doing fine. They're not fucked up the way I am. And maybe if I could be in an environment like that, I would not be off, you know, so bad. I mean, I didn't fit in. I felt like if I was with more like-minded people, but I was at the same time getting arrested and doing graffiti and getting in fights and skipping school. And I don't blame them. And they went to a doctor and the doctor said, you should hospitalize them. And they came up with this plan. And my mom told me that she was going to take me to a place to get tested so I could go to one of those schools that I felt like I could do better at. And we went into the hospital. I mean, it's like the story out of an awful movie, but we're just walking and I'm feeling great. And we had breakfast. And then I walked through a door with the person and my mom stayed and the door closed behind me. And it was like, wait, what the fuck is going on? And I was locked up and it was very, it was awful for a lot of reasons. Like the biggest thing was that my parents were ashamed of themselves and me, I think. And they didn't tell anyone. I just disappeared to the world. My friends didn't know where I was. I had been kicked out of school, so it wasn't like, you know, it was pre-cell phone and text and email. And so I wasn't in the mix with anybody that much and they didn't tell anyone. So like I literally had no visitors and no anything. And and also it was kind of a fucked up place. And I was on a ward with adults and kids. So like all of like the group sessions, I mean, some of the stuff, it was very traumatizing. And at first I was getting in fights there and really lashing out and going crazy. And then actually I kind of settled down a little bit. And like towards the end of my stay there, I felt like I was doing better. And then my insurance ran out. <laughs> yeah. So perfect storm. I saw so it was a perfect storm. And then 
they recommended that I go into like long-term residential care, but my insurance wouldn't pay for it. So they had planned on putting me into a, um, like a public residential mental health facility, which would have like been the worst thing that ever happened to me ever. Like had that actually happened, I think, I mean, who fucking knows what would have happened with my life, but Ultimately, what happened was there was a seven month wait list to get into that facility. And my parents shared with my my godmother what was going on. And she was a psychologist. And she said to my parents, they can't do that. If they can't find a public facility to have space, they can't just keep him out of school. And she went and advocated for me to be able to go back to school while I waited. And a couple things happened that were kind of good, which I ended up going to a totally different school where I didn't know anybody and I just was able to kind of start over. And I actually was doing pretty well. And this was when I was 14, it was like ninth grade or so. And I started a band, a new band, and I met some cool kids and I was feeling like I got, I was getting my life together. And then um, the bass player in my band who was like, one of my closest friends and like really one of those, you know, you meet people sometimes and like, I just loved the person he saw in me. I wanted to be that person. And it was really, he thought I was cool and interesting and he didn't think I was a fuck up. And I kind of really aspired to be the person he thought I was. And then he got struck by lightning and died. That was the first time that I just was like catatonically depressed that didn't manifest in anger. That was just like, oh my God, like, holy fucking shit. This is like really awful. And anyway, to sum it up, basically what happened was they moved me to another school that was like focused more on mental health stuff, but wasn't residential. And I did pretty well there and kind of worked my way back into like regular school, but I never did really clicked in school, but I did start playing music actively And I really feel like having that thing to like think about and pour my heart into and to just kind of give me a kind of a sense of community, I really became like a different person. And and all of that pain and that was manifesting as anger, I kind of turned into like drive towards wanting to like connect with people and wanting to succeed. And, you know, by the time I was 16, I was like booking a West Coast tour for my band at the time, Ashes and you know, and then when I was 17, I dropped out of high school to go tour in Europe with Battery and music just became my life. So. So tracing back to when you first got into punk, you know, we all have that story of, you know, how we first got exposed to it. Yeah. So <laughs> my older brother is like he sings in a band called Damnation AD and he's like he had a friend whose sister played in a very cool DC band called At Wit's End. And he at first exposed us to like, at first it was like New Wave, like The Cure and Depeche Mode and Smiths. And that's kind of what we were, Echo and the Bunnymen. That's what we were into. And then one day my brother came home with the Suburbia movie VCR (laughs) tape. (laughs) And we watched that. And I was in, in fifth grade at the time. And I was like, oh my God, I fucking love this. This is it even at that age, I just always felt like an outsider. And like, these were outsiders that were like fucking rad. (laughs) I just was like, I love this. So my mom would take us, started taking us to the record store 
and would say like, what's good and is punk, you know, they will like punk. So the first punk record I got was the dead Kennedys and God we trust. And I just remember coming home and it sounded so fucking crazy. Like we couldn't figure out what speed it, the record was supposed to play at <laughs> because it just sounded crazy at, at any speed. So I got into like, you know, I started wearing like Sex Pistols shirts and all this stuff. And then one day I was walking down the street and this skinhead looking guy walked out of a house that was like maybe six or seven houses up the street from my house. And he just yells, Sex Pistols are bollocks. <laughs> and I was like, what? And I turned around and he comes out and he was like, started asking me what I listened to and telling me that the stuff that I was into was not the good stuff. My brother and I started going to his house. And at first he was playing us all this British punk, like Discharge and GBH and all that. And I liked it, but I didn't love it. And finally he became like fixated on finding something we loved. And then one day he played me seven seconds and I was just like, holy shit. It was fast and melodic and I could understand the words and the words were cool. And that just was the beginning of the next 35 years of my life. <laughs> what was the trajectory of your mental health? As soon as I got away from my home life, that was like such a trigger. That was what was making all of this inner pain manifest itself as like anger and lashing out. And I moved away and I moved to Boston and that's when I started my studio when I was 18. And then I never got in trouble. I never got in another fight. I mean, I'm, it's funny because if you asked like friends of mine or bands I worked with, if they could ever imagine me being like that, they would be fucking shocked because really I just stopped. But when I was like 18 and 19 and like that's when I started to realize that what was actually wrong was that I didn't feel good about myself, that I had a lot of inner doubt and, and pain. And what I kind of did that really helped was I just poured all of that into making music. And at that time, I was still making a lot of my own music. So I started recording bands in this little basement. And that went kind of shockingly well. At first, I didn't have any clients. And then Within the first year of having my studio open, I recorded Texas is the Reason, Converge, 108, 10-Yard Fight, Bane. I mean, the, an incredible list of bands. And that little brief era in my life was incredibly, like, amazing. I mean, I had the studio was going well. Battery was doing really well. I started this rock band that was called Milltown that I loved doing. And we got signed to Warner Brothers and, like, going from, like, being locked up in a mental hospital and potentially locked away in like a residential facility to all of a sudden having like, I met my wife and we moved to Boston together and things were professionally going incredibly well. But that is also what helped me realize that like I wasn't entirely okay because I felt pretty horrible about myself, even though everything was breaking my way. Battery was on Revelation, Milltown was on Warner Brothers. I was recording all these amazing bands. Like I should have felt amazing and I felt really horrible. And that's really when I was like, wow, this is not okay. So actually then I didn't have health insurance. I didn't have anything like that. And I started going to, to therapy when I was in Boston and that helped a ton. And it, it's interesting because it's kind of similar how I feel about the Be Well record. 
making a commitment to myself that something's not okay and I have to try and find a way to make things better. And like going, I found a therapist that charged like on a sliding scale and I just paid her, I think it was like $35 a session, but just making an appointment and going and sitting in a room and saying what I was feeling really like helped take a lot of the air out of the inner thoughts that had been really haunting me at the time. I felt a lot better for, for a long time. And then I had like a steep, really incredible climb. Everything was going well. And then there was like a course of four months where Milltown broke up in the studio, making our major label debut battery broke up. And the guy I had gone into business with some partners and they kind of fucked me over and the studio kind of fell apart. And literally I went from like riding that high to having to move back to my parents' basement and start over. Basically, that was a tough time, but I ended up renting a house and putting my little studio and just that's when I started just solely focusing on production for the next 20 years. And I think one of the things that was really hard with the mental health stuff was during that era of like kind of rebuilding my career and working on all these records and all this stuff and being such a young person trying to do that is I really did not want anyone to know what was going on internally. Like I really felt strongly that if people knew how fucked up I was, that they wouldn't want to like trust me to be in charge of their records. Like it's the most irrational thing in the world. And I know that now, but I really felt that way. Like, and at first it was not as much of a problem because I had the bands I was working with, but I also had friends that were like, not those people that were more aware of what was going on. But as time went on record after record and the bands lived with us when they were recording, it slowly became that my entire social universe was these people that I was hiding this thing that was so huge about myself. It just, I ignored it and I poured my heart and soul into the records. And that really was therapeutic in a lot of ways. And I went through a long period of time where it was very manageable for me. I guess being around all those folks too, like I'm thinking guys like Hot Water Music, I mean, oh, yeah. talk about positive, right? Yeah. And they're, I mean, then they're amazing. And, and I know that I was wrong. I know that those guys love me. And had they known, you know, how much pain I had, they wouldn't have turned away. They would have fucking done anything for me. But the thing about like depression and is that it's not fucking reasonable. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not, it doesn't make sense. You know, it's not like I felt like a failure and I was one of the most sought after people to produce records for bands all over the world. I know that isn't a reasonable feeling. And I knew that it wasn't a reasonable feeling at the time, but I had no way to like change the way that I saw myself or felt about myself. And, and what ended up happening was just like you said, being around all these warm, incredible people all the time. And also having records to really pour my heart and soul into really helped even though i wasn't sharing it at least it wasn't paralyzing me and crippling me i did have things that i cared about and brought me immense pleasure and joy but as time went on with the studio the first step was when my daughter was born trying to do the studio work the way that i had been doing the studio work became very hard because I think people sometimes don't realize what a tough lifestyle being a producer is. 10, 12 hour days, sometimes six, seven days a week, you might have a band in from Australia 
and you have no choice except to work 15 hours a day every day to get it done because they already have tickets and they have to get home. And that was also a time when bands, you know, in the Internet world, the demand for content became so strong that bands were coming into the studio far less prepared than they had been before. So it just the stress of the studio environment became very hard. The budgets got really bad when people stopped buying records and there wasn't Spotify and things like that. And I was drowning in like the stress and pressure of it all. And ultimately I decided to sell the studio and take a break and get what I thought was a good idea, get a regular job for a little bit. So I sold the studio, decided it was going to take a couple of years and try and do something else. And I took a job as like a project manager for a big construction company in the DC Baltimore area. And then, you know, I'm like a hardcore kid with grit and drive and DIY mentality. So I just hustled and killed it there. And then within six months, they made me the chief operating officer of the company. And I was essentially running huge portions of this company. The thing is that (laughs) one, the people that worked there and ran it, I didn't love and I didn't were kind of not cool and I didn't love the job and I was trying to put my heart and soul into it the way that I had done with records, but it was totally meaningless to me. And the biggest thing about that job that I hadn't prepared myself for how hard it would be is that I had spent my entire life surrounded by people working on things that I knew mattered so much and would exist forever. All of a sudden, I'm like in my work truck going from job to job, checking on things all alone. And because I wasn't making records and because my entire social network was bands, I didn't really have any reason to be intertwined with them the way that I had been. So really, for the first time ever, I had nothing to pour myself into. And I was pretty much entirely alone for hours and hours and hours at a time. And really like all of the years of kind of burying this stuff and kind of dealing with it by pouring my heart into other things, it really ramped up and caught up with me pretty quickly. And I woke up one day and realized that like I was in a pretty scary, bad place in my life. And I, you know, I realized that I was coming home and I was drinking more than I should. I realized that I was totally tuned out from my wife and my daughter and I was missing huge portions of my daughter's childhood. And I was very, very scared. And I just would basically do anything to block that feeling out. And then when it ended up happening was we got offered to do a handful of battery shows in Europe. I didn't want to do it at first. And then the guys really pushed me to do it. And so I committed to doing it. And then all of a sudden, just having something, there's something coming up that I'm looking forward to. And I have this reason to be like talking to people and reaching out to people. And I have emails to read in the morning that aren't shitty, like work emails that just make me stressed. And I had things that I felt like I wanted to share with my wife and daughter at dinner and like One day, the guitar player from Battery sent me a song and it was like, I hadn't written music of my own in 20 years at this point. He sent me this riff. I mean, I had written with bands and helped co-write, you know, things like that. But I had not sat down with a pen and paper or a guitar and been like, I'm going to write something for myself. They get this song at like six o'clock in the morning when I wake up. 
And I literally sat down <laughs> with a pad of paper and I wrote probably like the most revealing song, not even trying to do it. It was this song called My Last Breath where I like talked about being in a mental hospital and talked about how I was afraid that like all of these awful things that I feel like are kind of embedded in me that I fear I'm going to pass along to my daughter. And it just came out of me like five minutes later, it was done. It just poured out of me like I had been. I just I can't express to you the weight that came off my shoulders when I finally even just admitted that I was feeling some of this to myself is almost unexplainable. And at that point in time, I just remember like my wife saying to me, like, you need to be doing music. Like you need to be writing. You need to like force yourself to like think about these things and acknowledge these things and not let them like grow inside you and become corrosive. And on the Be Well record, your whole life is on there. Yeah. So, well, what, so what ended up happening is I just started writing. Like from that day forward, I just started, I just, every single day I would sit down and I just made a commitment to myself that I'm going to write something every single day. And what I did, because I'm like an overthinker is I decided I was going to do all of that. And I wasn't going to listen back to any of it. I wasn't going to read any of it. I was going to just kind of let out whatever came most naturally. And then it's pretty fucking revealing. I've had a lot of people say to me, are you sure you want to say that? Are you sure you want to share that? If you put that out there, you're not going to be able to take it back. People said to me, are you sure you want your daughter to hear you saying some of this stuff? And actually, that's what the song, The Weight and the Cost on the record and the album title is about, which is basically like I had to at that point make a decision like, am I OK with my daughter like? knowing not only about my past struggles, but my current struggles and my conflicts as being a parent. Having kids is the best thing in the world. And everybody says that, but it's also hard. My goals and aspirations as like a human being <laughs> and my pain as a human being didn't go away just because I brought someone new into the world and kind of balancing the responsibility of having this little girl in my life that I just so desperately want to like have a different life than I had while also dealing with things that were ongoing for me. It was very hard. And I just kind of ultimately decided that if she doesn't know this about me, she'll never truly know me. And even if it changes the way that she feels about me, I want her to be able to look back and know that when I was coming home and when I was tuned out, when I was missing recitals or I was just too lost to kind of pay attention to, I really wanted to just put that down an avenue to express some of the things that I I felt like I had no other way to express. It sounds like you're in a pretty good place these days. So yeah, what does your depression look like now? I literally feel right now in this moment, possibly in the best place I've ever been in my life. One, the reaction and the response to the record, I had fully prepared myself for people that I loved and people who heard it to be like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy? <laughs> and I've actually got the total opposite. The people that I care about the most and that I felt like most ashamed for them to know reach out to me and be like, dude, I have felt the same fucking shit 
dude, I love you and I'm so proud of you and like it's so cool to see you doing this. And and then it's gone just a, a lot a lot better than I ever dreamt it was gonna go. My daughter loves when I'm working on music. When I'm playing and I'm writing and I'm doing things like that, she just likes to like come into like my music room and have her headphones on and like lean up against me while I'm doing creative things. And I feel like we're closer than we've ever been. And I mean, tomorrow might be totally different. So, I mean, that's the thing about all this stuff. You never know where you're going to end up being. But right now, I mean, I just, I honestly don't know that I've ever felt so connected to my family, to my friends. I don't know that I've ever felt so much gratitude as I do feel to like the punk and hardcore community for giving me a family and giving me an avenue to find myself at multiple times in my life when I needed a community to like hear me and see me and appreciate not only my strengths, but my weaknesses. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Screen Therapy. Screen Therapy is now airing on college and community radio stations. They include my hometown radio station, CGMP, out of Powell River, CJSF 90.1 FM, Simon Fraser University, Radio Humber from Humber College in Toronto, Ontario, and Radio Waterloo, CKMS, from Waterloo, Ontario. You can connect with me at soundcloud.com slash screamtherapy. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, take care and be well. Keep it